Coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. The sense that not enough people really understand what the Abraham Accords are and why they're such a big deal. This is historic. We have not seen peace or normalization agreements between Israel and Arabs in generation. What Arab king built the largest Christian church in the Middle East region and why? Hi, welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund. I'm Carl Muller, Executive Director of the Joshua Fund, and I'm joined here in Jerusalem on this very special episode with Joel Rosenberg. Joel, welcome. Welcome uh, to Jerusalem. It's good to have you back, uh, and it's great to do this podcast in person. It's great to be here. It's so rare that we get to do this. As you can see, we're we're not in our usual two locations in California and Jerusalem. I'm actually here this week for the uh, Jerusalem Prayer Breakfast. And uh, Joel, I wanted to ask you a couple questions about a recent delegation that you put together called the Abraham Accords Delegation. Uh, We were in April. We went on this delegation. Why did you organize that? Well, I got invited by three governments, uh, the Kingdom of Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates and here the State of Israel. Each of the three ambassadors from those countries to Washington have become friends. And uh, I had met with each of them and they had been saying, let's, you know, you've done six evangelical leadership delegations prior to the Abraham Accords, mm-hmm. but the Abraham Accords become a line of demarcation. There was the, you know, pre and now there's post. And what has changed in the region? Now, the Bahrainis uh, hadn't had us come yet. We we had been working on it for several years and we'd had to postpone it several times because of uh, COVID. So this was the first opportunity uh, not for me to go to Bahrain, I'd been there, but to bring a delegation. But they wanted a three-country delegation, which is logistically a little challenging. <laughs> but it was it was very exciting. I'm so glad that you were part of it. Yeah, it was really amazing. And, uh, you know, uh, just the idea of the Abraham Accords. Let's step back for a second and, and just talk about, you know, what are the Abraham Accords? We've mentioned them before in the podcast. But, you know, what were we there to do? What were the goals of yeah. the Abraham Accords? Sure. So, okay, the Accords themselves are these uh, peace and normalization agreements between several Arab countries that had never created any type of uh, formal relationship with Israel at all. In fact, each of these countries had not been directly tactically or strategically at war in the sense of bombs and missiles and troops. This wasn't like Egypt and Jordan signing peace treaties Mm. uh, in 1979 and 1994, respectively, in which there literally was no more fighting. But the Arab countries have been engaged in boycotts, economic boycotts, and uh, you, you couldn't travel to these countries with an Israeli passport. There was no diplomatic embassies, in, you know, there's no, there no formal relationship. Mm. Now, been, some of these countries have developed some informal relationship, but none of them wanted to move forward right. to make a, a peace or normalization relationship with Israel. Why? Because the Saudis, um, under a previous king, had in 2002 established a principle called the Arab Peace Initiative. It started as the Saudi Peace Initiative, and it became uh, embraced by the entire Arab League, Mm -hmm. uh, the the sort of United Nations of the Arab countries. And long story short, what they had said is, until Israel makes peace with the Palestinians, and vice versa, nobody is normalizing relations Hmm. with Israel. The Palestinians have to come first. But Hmm. once that happens, all Arab countries and all 57 members of the Organization of the Islamic Conference. They may not be Arab, but they're Muslim majority mm-hmm. countries. All of us will make peace mm-hmm. if Israel will do X, Y, and Z. Well, that had gone on for almost you know twenty years at that point, and no, but nothing had happened. Right. And so the dramatic moment came when the United Arab Emirates 
in August of 2020 decided, you know what, we're not waiting anymore. Right. We have national interests. Uh, we love the Palestinians, but we're going to make peace. We're going to normalize relations with Israel. And then within weeks, with days, really, the kingdom of Bahrain went next. Then uh, the Republic of Sudan, which is interesting because Sudan, we'll get maybe get into that more later, but let me, let me just say Sudan was exactly where in 1967, after the Six-Day War here, which the Arabs lost, all the Arab leaders met in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, and they said the three no's, that was their declaration, no peace with Israel, no negotiations with Israel, no recognition of Israel. So Sudan, the home of the three no's, decided to become the third country to say yes. They said yes, yes, and yes. Yes to peace with Israel, yes to recognition, yes to negotiations. And then a fourth country, the kingdom of Morocco, Mm -hmm. uh, signed on. And then a fifth country, non-Arab but Islamic, Kosovo, uh, in Europe, decided they wanted to become a normalized country with Israel. So this was huge. All of it happened in the summer and fall of 2020. But it also was happening during COVID. So I had led these other six delegations, but none of us could go and sort of see why did they make these decisions and and talk to leaders Mm -hmm. at the highest levels. And then is it working? You know, that's, (laughs) that was sort of the purpose to go, go see it for ourselves. So the goal was for us to go and to see the primary uh, countries that had made peace with Israel that way. The initial two. The initial two and, and to kind of represent the, the evangelical viewpoint on that perspective, correct? Yes, and and admittedly, I wanted to say, when you start to say you represent, you think you take 12 people and a couple of staff, (laughs) how does that represent? Well, you just have to pick somebody, right? right. And uh, it's hard to take a a good cross-section of a community, at least in the United States alone, of 60 million evangelicals, right? Or worldwide, 600 million. Uh, So, you know, I did the best I could. You know, I prayed about it, and I thought, well, you know. So it was great to take, in this case... It wasn't so much uh, pastors and theologians as it was evangelical business leaders sure. and media leaders, uh, people involved in Christian media. And so, uh, you know, you as the head of the Joshua Fund, which has funded my efforts to go into these countries over the years, uh, was encouraging because you hadn't come on the staff as the executive director of the Joshua Fund. We hadn't even started the podcast uh, when I finished my last delegation. So this has been a big change. Yes. And you came in just as that change was kicking into motion, right? You started, I think, in May of 2020. Yeah, June. And uh, yeah, June, yeah. okay. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, so it was that summer yeah. that all these announcements started getting made. And I was glad to have you and several other members of the Josh Fund Board, but also the Near East Media Board, where all Israel news and all Arab news, you know, are funded and, and overseen by. And then these various journalists from various Christian media. Again, that it wouldn't be only me getting to see and have these conversations. But let's take a group of people in and then, you know, be able to see it from multiple angles and vantage points and and have an interesting conversation along the way. Yeah, I think it was brilliant to bring both business leaders and uh, media leaders because one of the biggest problems with the Abraham Accords was that so few people really took note of it because of COVID and because of the way the, the, the Trump administration was viewed in the mainstream media a lot. That 
I thought that was brilliant to bring. Um, we had representatives from uh, all Israel and all Arab News, the Near East right. media team. We had representatives from uh, CBN, right. Christian uh, Broadcasting Network. Christian right. Broadcasting Network. We had TBN, right. Trinity Broadcasting Network, and we had Newsmax. Right. I think it was uh, remarkably uh, encouraging. Maybe maybe you could talk a little bit about how you you felt like the uh, the officials that we met with in all of these different countries really responded to the media being part of it. Well, I think that was a big different from the previous six delegations in the sense that, as you say, the, the sense that not enough people really understand what the Abraham Accords are and why they're such a big deal. This is historic. We have not seen peace or normalization agreements between Israel and Arabs in a generation. It had almost been 25 years since the Jordanians had made peace in 1994. And, you know, many Christians all over the world have been praying for the peace of Jerusalem, just like we were commanded by King David in Psalm 122, and thinking, okay, Lord, you know, hello, like we keep praying and you're not breaking these doors open. Yeah. Your answer seems to be no or wait. And, uh, you know, a whole generation grew up and they'd never yeah. seen an Arab and Israeli make a peace agreement together. And so suddenly, you know, it was not just a, a door, it was the floodgates opened and to see four and then a fifth agreement just within two and a half months of each other. It's it was incredible. Like, yeah, things were crackling. And then COVID, of course, made it slow to start to implement where delegations of government leaders, uh, trade ministers and, uh, you know, economic ministers and religious leaders and whatever could start to go back and forth and sign agreements, even negotiate agreements. So I think taking business leaders and media leaders was not only important to me to kind of change things up a little bit, but it was a felt need of the three countries. They really feel, not just the Israeli, but the Arab leaders too, very few people are listening. And the media is a little cynical. Yeah. The Nobel Peace Prize Committee, pretty cynical. Like, I mean, again, not trying to be a partisan, but how did Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu and the crown prince of the United Arab Emirates and the king of Bahrain, just for starters, how do these people not win a Nobel Peace Prize. If you can't make it, win a Nobel Peace Prize for making peace, <laughs> I'm not sure what, what the requirements are anymore. I really don't get that, and I don't think they do either. Mm. Now they're not so worried about the specific prizes. It's but how do people understand it, yeah. and how do they get involved? How do investors know enough to say, I want to learn more? Maybe I want to invest in a project or, a, a, you know, a mutual fund or whatever that's beginning to do these things? How do religious leaders think, I'd like to put together a conference, and is that a thing that you can do? And how safe is it for a Jew or a Christian right. to touch base in Bahrain or the United Arab Emirates? So a lot was happening, and it was really exciting to have people who had never been on the delegation. I think only one of us, uh, besides myself, had ever come on these delegations mm -hmm. before, so that was amazing to have a lot of fresh eyes on the target, as it were. Well, as one of those fresh eyes, it was really breathtaking and amazing it, to, to go to these uh, three countries, Bahrain, UAE, and uh, Israel, in 10 days and meet with some of the officials that we met with. It was absolutely... Pretty senior people. Very senior people. And I know we're going we're gonna to focus on each one of those countries sort of in sequence in these podcasts, but... Uh, with uh, some good video, too. Good uh, we, video. We picked up these, these crews... Uh, TBN, for example, one of the sent nice a crew things. of three, um, you know, really, they really invested heavily in let's 
capture what's going on in these countries and let's bring back the highest quality video. And this, you know, uh, CBN sent a cameraman, you know, and, and Newsmax, as you say, also. And so there was a lot of material. And, I, and I'm hoping that we all can, you know, weave in some real imagery of what we got to see so that people can see it as well. Yeah, not I do. our normal way of doing a podcast, but not, not our normal cool, podcast uh, for these next three. I think that'd be pretty cool. But these are not normal times. Not the, normal this, times. Was, this was an amazing experience and and one that I'll know, I know that I'll never forget. And I'm sure everyone who was on. What were some of the highlights for you? Just oh, uh, well, um, certainly the food. <laughs> I enjoy the food. That's uh, that was amazing. But I think what was your comment uh, and, and the uh, night in, in Bahrain? We went to the one iftar dinner, and um, an iftar dinner is is, is the uh, breaking of the fast in the evening in Ramadan. And uh, we went with the ambassador to the United States from Bahrain uh, at his uh, reception palace there. And it was, um, I, can I only say, my, my comment to you was, it was uh, like being in Downton Abbey and Arabian Nights at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It was the Arabian version of Downton Abbey because it was just amazing. But I think... With, with uh, footmen. With footmen. You couldn't drink a glass I of could, juice, I, one sip, and they would fill it right up. They would up, fill the they, glass. Uh, just a sumptuous meal. And the, was the really food was elaborate. obviously like, delicious and elaborate. And the, we would have been happy uh, to go to, you know, KFC or, you know, Pizza Hut <laughs> with them. But, that on but, the uh, they went right. a little... Uh, I think they took <laughs> to another level, another level. But I would also just say one of the most fascinating and beautiful things to see was, and I mean this with, with, with all, you know, just candor, Joel, just the, the level of affection that these leaders had for you, the respect and personal relationship that you have with so many of these very, very high officials. And we'll talk about some of those in a little bit here. And uh, I want to take a, a quick break. Before we do, I just wanted to thank you again for giving me the opportunity to be part of that and to witness that. So but uh, but we're going to take a quick break here, and then how can we do uh, an inside the epicenter uh, podcast and not take you inside, inside the, epicenter? the epicenter? We was totally there, so uh, <laughs> so that's great. We'll be back in just a second. Our verse for the day today is found in Matthew chapter sixteen, verse twenty-four, in the New American Standard Bible. Then Jesus said to his disciples. If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Our prayer requests today are for the kingdom of Bahrain. We'd ask that you would pray for the people in the kingdom of Bahrain, especially the believers there, that they would stand strong and be bold in their witness for Christ. And second, pray for those that follow Christ, that they would experience his protection and presence. Okay, we're back. Joel, we have to answer the one big question that we started with. What Arab king is responsible for building the largest church in the Gulf region? Yeah, so that would be King Hamad al-Khalifa. He's the king of Bahrain and really an extraordinary leader. Uh, We think of, I mean, you know, a lot of Americans, a lot of Christians around the world who, who watch or listen to our podcast don't have much experience. They may not even know exactly what Bahrain is, where it is. It's a little tiny kingdom, about a million, 1.3, 1.4 million people. The majority is a Shia Muslim population, uh, though the leaders are Sunni. And I call Bahrain uh, the hidden pearl of the Gulf. And uh, we can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But, But it just has very interesting values that I think a lot of Christians worldwide 
wouldn't maybe know because they may not be familiar with the region so much to know this is such a very peaceful, moderate, right. friendly country. But it's a beautiful island, too. It's actually a series of islands. It's like 70 islands, and they keep building additional islands to attach to themselves because they need more land yeah. because of the growing population stuff. Anyway, Bahrain is where they first discovered oil. Right, I didn't, even, I didn't even well. know that. We were driving along, <laughs> and they pull us over, and they say, yeah, "By the way, uh, this is the first oil well," <laughs> I, and I, I'm sure we'll show some video of that. And then uh, I didn't realize that because they found it there, and then they thought, "Well, maybe there's oil in other parts of the Gulf," and sure enough, there was. So Bahrain is a trading nation. It's because it's a series of islands. This is where fishermen and traders from all over the world have come. And this was sort of the base camp for like people from India to bring spices and all kinds of other things that they bring from India sure. or, or, or the Orient. <laughs> right. And then caravan them in to the interior of Arabia, right? Uh, on, on, on camels, on camels mostly. Yeah. And, and so this was one of those port of entry. And so the people have just developed a real warmth towards others. Like, they had to be inclusive because they were a trading post, a series of trading posts. And I think King Hamad uh, really captures that sense of, or or exemplifies that sense of of, of a welcoming heart. We hear of Arab hospitality, but I think because of the last 20 Two years or so of, uh, of uh, I mean, maybe more in terms of think of Arab-Israeli war, but then you just think from 2001 forward of radical Islamist terrorism. You th- Arab hospitality wasn't the first thing people thought of right. when they thought of this region, right? They thought of terrorism and war and and suffering and genocide. Bahrain has been an island of of, of somewhat stability. Right. Uh, it's had its bumps. But King Hamad is really an impressive leader. I have not met him. We didn't get to meet him on this particular trip. But I've met a lot of his closest, uh, you know, colleagues and advisors as we did. Mm-hmm. And I think that he has created, again, that's why I call it a hidden pearl yeah. in the Gulf. Pearl diving was one of the major things back in the day. In fact, you can still get great pearl necklaces and <laughs> pearl earrings and whatever. But um, it's, it's, just a, it's just a place that most people don't know about. Sure. And it's... It's hidden, but it's beautiful. And I would say if if the Caribbean had money, <laughs> if they had oil, if they had oil, this would be, this it, would be the it. Bahrain is like exactly. the, the Caribbean vibe. It's, it's calmer, it's friendly, it's but it's pretty advanced technologically also. Very advanced, but and and the U.S. Uh, I think it's the, the seventh, fifth, the fifth, fifth fleet. fleet. Yeah, fifth our fleet navy, there, main right? navy um, facility uh, deals with so the, what they call to the Arabs call it Arabian Gulf. The, <laughs> Iranians call the Persian Gulf. Yeah, that's a very important facility. Uh, Bahrain is super close to the United States, super close to the West, and they want to be that. They love the United States. They don't always agree with the United States on everything. And in many ways, um, Bahrain felt they were too small Mm. to make peace with Israel, to normalize. They don't even call it normalize. They call it formalization because they feel like they've had a pretty good relationship over the last several decades with Israel. But... Because they're small and because Iran is, you know, the, the Iranian regime is literally right across the water. Right. Like, that's why the Fifth Fleet is there, right. to keep them and the rest of Arabia safe. They just didn't think they could step out while the rest of the Arab world was, like, not interested in making peace with Israel. 
once the United Arab Emirates decided to do it under their crown prince, we'll talk about in the next program, the king was ready. I mean, yeah, he, you, totally. and he actually announced that he was joining the Abraham Accords on September 11th, wow. 2020. I mean, wow. to pick a day symbolically to say, I know for the United States and for the region that it was the worst, darkest day, yeah. but I'm going to make peace and we're going to change the way uh, people think about that day. Yeah, it was beautiful. And the people were beautiful. The people were very warm. Like you said, very... Very open, very welcoming, and uh, and as evangelicals, you know, we were very impressed. I was very impressed in this this largest church in the region. Yeah. The, the, our, so our uh, so our tour guide, we had a little time. Yeah. Right, it wasn't everything was a meeting with the interior minister right. and the right. head of this and the head of that. We went out to see the uh, first oil well, and we wanted to just see a little bit of Bahrain. Sure. You know, you guys had never been there, and I had never been out to the oil well. Well, as we're driving out there, right, the, the tour guide goes, oh, by the way, that's a, that's a church. That's the largest church in the region. I'm like, wait, wait, what? You said like what? He, just, he was a wonderful Muslim uh, Bahraini. He just didn't quite get why we would say, um, can we stop there? <laughs> now, on that day, it, it, there wasn't time, but he did arrange with uh, the head of the church, could we go back the next day? And we did. Mm. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to show some yeah. of that. Now, it was a Roman Catholic church, uh, so we wouldn't be on the exact same wavelength as evangelicals. But it was interesting to spend time with uh, the, the priest and to hear that the king, King Muhammad, had decided that there should be not just a, another church. There's, there had only been 18 others in the entire country. Wow. This is the 19th. But he said, we really ought to build the largest church in the Gulf. And so he took the, the the archbishop who was sort of the head of the Roman Catholics in the region, and they flew to Rome and they met with Pope Francis uh, uh, several years ago, and they all worked out the details and and under it's the king's money, it's the king's sure. land given to uh, the Roman Catholics to do this. And there are evangelical churches there yep. as well in in the area, but I just thought, wow, this is really not the way we mostly think of right. the Arab Muslim world, Saudi Arabia. How many churches do they have? Zero, zero. right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you say, okay, well, they only have 19. Yeah, but compared to zero, <laughs> and Saudi Arabia is huge. Right. And Saudi Arabia has 1.4 million uh, Christians. These are expatriates. Yeah. They're people working in the oil industry, the hospitality yeah. industry, and so forth. But, you know, uh, that's a separate conversation for another time. But I, I said to the Saudi crown prince, listen, you've got 1.4 million followers of Jesus in your kingdom and you don't let anybody go to a church. Yeah. Uh, can't we change this? The king of Bahrain already has, and he has for, for decades, or for more than 100 yeah. years, and uh, it goes way back, way before him. But for him to say, let's not only do it, let's even do it so that you have the space. They had, yeah. they had like, I forget the numbers, 10,000-something people worshiping on Easter yep. weekend. That's a pretty big deal it's in the Muslim world where you, we, I think most Christians worldwide would think, do they even have churches at all mm-hmm. in the Muslim world? And yeah, they do. wouldn't have expected that. There's 14% of Bahrainis are, are Christian. And, yeah. and um, you know, of course, mostly expatriates. I right. mean, that's, that's the, the right. nature but there of are the, Muslim, the region. Muslims have come to faith in yeah. Jesus as well. There's a very healthy uh, believing community there. Yeah. And uh, from a number of different uh, uh, theological perspectives. But, yeah, I think it's, again, this part back to this hidden pearl in the Gulf. Like, yeah. wow, who knew that you had such a pro-religious freedom, pro-peace, pro-growth, pro 
modernization, pro-reform. Yeah. I'm not saying everything's there is perfect, no. but it's pretty lovely, right. and they've really gone a long way. And I think it's it's something that most Americans, most Christians worldwide, just so don't know it's there. And I I would love to do an epicenter conference or something there at some point. I think uh, we should take people to go see it. It's it's a hub, and we saw that we met with the Minister of uh, Commerce and Tourism, and you know they have very big plans for bringing those things there. But you know, it was also interesting. You mentioned the tour guide. I remember um, speaking with him and pointing out the different icons the around the, the center part of the church oh, yeah, yeah. and explaining to him, you know, the different episodes of Jesus's life, including right. the crucifixion and, right. and the resurrection. It was really right. powerful. Not something that's uh, believed in Islam, much right. less talked about. Right. No, it was, and it was lovely and, and, uh, and great spirit there. And, you know, just one last question on the uh, religious liberty. There's a Jewish community there as well, which is another yeah. fascinating dimension it of this. And we had a chance to, to engage them a little bit. Right. So it's a small Jewish community. Yes, uh, there are less than 40 <laughs> yeah. Jewish Bahrainis, but they're fairly prominent. Uh, for example, uh, one of the members of the advisory board for our All Arab News is Bahraini. Her name is Hoda Nunu, and she is one of these members of the Jewish community. She was appointed by the Arab Muslim king as a Bahraini Jew to be the first woman ambassador ever sent by Bahrain anywhere. And she was sent to the United States for six years. Now, just think about how almost crazy that is. An Arab Muslim king appoints a woman Jewish Bahraini to represent Bahrain to the number one most important (laughs) ally of Bahrain. And not just like, oh, let's do that for a few weeks. Oh, that didn't work out. But I think, again, five or six years. And she's lovely. Uh, Hoda... uh, wanted to meet with us and brief us on life in Bahrain. And she did so at the synagogue that they refurbished just recently. And uh, we just had a lovely time with her again. Well, hopefully we'll be showing some some video of this as well. And uh, she's an amazing person, uh, worth a whole podcast probably unto herself. Totally. But um, yeah, just to sit in a Bahraini synagogue <laughs> with one of the main the most probably the most prominent certainly the most prominent member of the jewish community uh, in bahrain uh, it was was wonderful it was, an it was honor. so it sweet was an honor. And, it was beautiful uh, yeah well let's talk a little bit about um, the king and some of the other officials in bahrain and and this thing called the bahrain declaration yeah. what is that and how did that whole uh, thing come about so this is another one of these pieces that I, I write about in enemies and allies but again hasn't gotten much attention and it should Several years ago, uh, the king of Bahrain set up a, a center to really focus on trying to help people understand Bahrain's values of, uh, they don't use the term tolerance so much, although they're no. fine with it, yeah. but they kind of prefer coexistence and just religious freedom and, you know, working together. They're fine with, okay, you believe this and we don't believe that, but that's okay. We yeah. believe this and you don't believe that, but can we be friends and yeah. can we work together on things of mutual interest and concern? And and, and so I, I appreciate that. I think that's a sub-theme that we ought to keep developing in future podcast, which is neither you nor I believe in sort of the kumbaya, like all Muslims, Jews, Christians, we all basically believe in the same thing. We don't. Boil everything down. We don't. The question, but we can still be respectful of each other, but let's be clear. Muslims have a view of Jesus. Jews have a view of Jesus. We have a view of Jesus. Our view of Jesus is based on the New Testament. Right. The Quran tells us, tells Muslims to read the New Testament, but Ever since the Quran was written, Muslims have been told, don't read the New Testament because yeah. it was changed. But of course, it was not. 
And Jews don't read the New Testament and think, I'm not going to, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. So I think it's important that we are honest with each other, especially on these delegations. And we were, I mean, with the, at the highest levels, we talked about like our differences. That's important because I don't believe in blurring them. But that being said, the Bahrain Declaration lays out the key principles that Bahrain wanted to put on the, the table, as it were, as this is what we believe. Right. These are our core principles when it comes to religious freedom and, 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 and freedom of conscience. Mm. Now, the UN uh, Human Rights Charter talks about having freedom of religion and, and the freedom of conscience, meaning you can believe what you want to believe, right. and if you want to change, you ought to be allowed to change. Now, when it comes to religious freedom, that is the most sensitive issue. Yeah. I've been at a lot of religious freedom discussions and conferences and watched things online, and what people want to talk about is, listen, you can do what you think is right, and I'll do what I think is right, but don't try to tell me that yeah. you're right. Yeah. Like, you know, that, it's understandable, I guess, but... There, but point. even the UN, yeah. <laughs> which is not exactly the bastion of like all, you know, I don't agree <laughs> with the UN on a lot of things. But even the UN Charter of Human Rights says you have the right to believe something with regards to God and religion, and you have a right to change. Now that's true, and God affirms that right. He can conf- yeah. God, the God of the Bible, affirms that in chapter three of Genesis, which is listen, Adam and Eve. I put you here. I've made everything beautiful for you. I provided you everything. Now you have a choice. I'm yeah. going to give you the choice to betray me and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and go your own way. Right. You don't have to follow me. You ought to. Right. I want you to. I love you. But you have a choice. And that the choices don't mean that either choice is right. But God gives us that choice. Freedom of choice. That yes. is a fundamental yes. human right. So... What's great about the Bahrain Declaration, and we should put it, the link in the, in the show yeah, notes, is the show notes. it actually says that people have the right to believe in God as they want and to change yes. if they so choose. Um, that is not the standard you know, modus operandi in the Muslim world. Yeah. And in fact, in some countries, um, let's just take Pakistan or Afghanistan, even Saudi Arabia, even Egypt. you really uh, can't, it's not... But in Egypt, by law, you can change, but you can't go change your ID card. Right. Or you can't. So there are implications for right. you as a Muslim if you become a follower of Jesus. I'm not aware that it's literally illegal, but it, but there are serious repercussions yeah. if you do it. Now, they're not encouraging right. you to change, right? right? It's, it's a country that, uh, you know, it's Muslims. And in fact, their issue is between Shia Muslims and Sunni Muslims. They have inter- Oh, believe me. Inter-religious yeah. tensions- which are very real there. But for them to put that in a declaration it's amazing. In just in the last few years is a pretty bold statement, especially when you're a small country, not everybody's watching you. There's no particular reason to do it if you don't believe it yourself. But I think it speaks very highly of the king's confidence that his people are wonderful people and, and they're a very welcoming culture and believe what you believe. Uh, and change if you if you need to. It is a remarkable document in yeah. the, in all of the Middle East. I think it's one of the most compelling examples of of how they've taken steps to uh, make themselves much more open yeah. to Western thinking and Western uh, beliefs. You know, and honestly, I just felt like there was a sense in which 
they really earnestly wanted a dialogue. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times you'll, you'll meet people who are convinced in their religion and they really don't want dialogue. They, uh, they want you to believe what you believe and then leave them alone. And I really felt like there was, there was an openness there in that country. And that, now, maybe one of the things that we can also talk about in terms of the people we met with, uh, the, the ministers and the, the leaders there, the common thread, uh, not just in Bahrain, but in all the countries we met about the threats in the Middle East yeah. is... What? Iran. Iran. Uh, in fact, uh, the Minister of Interior, who's the most powerful, one of the most powerful ministers and closest to the king and, and goes back, he really, you know, he, he's been there for 20 some years, I believe. And it's, it's his son, who's the ambassador to Washington. It's a yeah. really part of the royal class. He said, like, the top three problems that we face are, number one, Iran, number two, Iran, and number three, Iran. Now, just to be clear, what he meant is the Iranian regime. He, he, they don't have any problem with the Iranian people. They, they would love to have a healthy relationship with the Iranian people. But the Iranian regime is not only trying to, you know, wipe Israel off the map, but they're trying to foment a revolution of the Shia Muslims, right? Iran is mostly Shia, Shia. Muslims, mm-hmm. uh, which is the, is the minority sect within Islam, right? Uh, the Sunnis are about 80, 85 percent, and the Shias are about 15 to 20 percent. So the Iranians are trying to find Shia Muslims who are Arabs, mm-hmm. who are Bahrainis, but try to get them to flip and be more Shia than Arab, yeah. be more loyal to Iran's regime than to the king of Bahrain. And they are trying to build a fifth column. Yeah. And they've been shipping in and smuggling in uh, weapons and, and uh, ammo and encouraging revolution. And uh, it, it, uh, I think it was 2011, there was a pretty sharp series of, uh, uh, of, of real battles. Uh, and there have been a lot of uh, Bahraini police officers and security officials uh, maimed and killed in the last 20 years. As we have battled radical Islamist terrorism, so have they. And it's one of the things that I think uh, has helped them solidify an historic affinity to the West and realize that they have to be all in. They can't be seen by the American people or the West generally as casual uh, moderates. They have to show the world Mm -hmm. they are serious about being moderates. And I think that's why they invited us. Mm -hmm. I think that's why they put out this declaration. I think that's why they've taken a series of concrete actions and symbolic actions to communicate, particularly to Americans, but again, more widely to Christians and others, Jews generally, and to Israel now, don't lump us in with a radical, crazy, violent extremist. That's not us. And we're with you against them. And that, I think, is something, again, that most people don't know. Again, I try to describe it in Enemies and Allies, but I will admit, uh, especially to my Bahraini friends, (laughs) that I don't have enough material in Enemies and Allies, the Mm. book, uh, about Bahrain, because the delegation, I I never even got there physically, much less bring a delegation, because I kept getting blocked by COVID. And so I didn't have all these type of conversations. Uh, we probably need an updated uh, you know, we'll edition uh, yeah. on, on, on this hidden pearl in the yeah. Gulf. It is certainly a hidden pearl. And, and I hope one that becomes more known, both to Christians and to Americans in general. Joel, thanks uh, for getting us there. We're going to be uh, talking about some of the other countries in the delegation trip that we took uh, in subsequent podcasts. But thanks so much for, for adding such Absolutely. insight I'm so this. glad you came, Carl. Again, first on the first delegation that you've been part of, and then specifically to go to two Arab countries that are the first countries in the uh, 
you know, in the Abraham Accords. And I would just say, you know, you prayed earlier, but I think I also, you know, we're commanded to pray for the peace uh, of Jerusalem. And they have now said, we want peace with Jerusalem. We are commanded to pray for kings and all those in authority. So in addition to praying for the believers in Jesus in Bahrain, let's be praying for the king, for Mm. the royal family, for all these ministers that are trying to implement the very peace that we have prayed for and that God has finally said yes to. Uh, let's pray that they are safe from the Iranian threat. Let's pray. Uh, the, the, the one other thing is uh, the Bahrainis, even though they're formalizing this relationship with Israel, let's just add one more thing, and that is the Bahraini leadership and people love the Palestinians. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. in fact, they hosted yeah. a workshop called the Manama Workshop. Manama is the capital city in Bahrain. That's where we spent most of our time. This was under the uh, during the Trump administration years, Jared Kushner, the senior advisor to the president, the son-in-law of the president, you know, he hosted this thing. And what happened? Arab countries came and the Palestinians' uh, leadership rejected. They didn't want to go. Mm. Even though at that workshop, the plan was, how do we give $50 billion, not give, but invest $50 billion into building the Palestinian society and economy so that we can reduce yeah. Uh, unemployment and poverty and, and help Palestinians get up on their feet and, and live a life much more worthy of uh, what yeah. God has created us for. And uh, I think that speaks very well also um, to the heart of the Bahraini king yeah. and to the people. Yeah, they're beautiful people. And uh, Joel, thank you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Joshua Fund, go to our website at joshuafund.com. And there you can learn about what we're doing in the Middle East to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus and how you can participate in the healing work we're doing in the critical region of the Middle East. And as always, you can check out our show notes for anything you heard on the podcast and anything you'd like more information on. For Joel Rosenberg, I'm Carl Muller. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Epicenter. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air. They're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more.